I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club, where your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are going to be discussing Chapter 8 from Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. But first, we have some would you rather questions for each other. So stay tuned. First, we're going to chat and then we'll get into the chapter. Okay, Laura, why don't you go first? I feel like you have a good one. No, I'm still, they're all so funny that I am having a really hard time deciding. Okay, well, I found one. I'll go first. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, Laura, would you rather get lost in the wilderness or in a dangerous city? Oh, what a question okay do i have my phone okay let's put it like in context <laughs> i think wilderness we're not talking about like you're hiking in los angeles and the phone's not working okay well maybe service is spotty. okay service is spotty so let's say you're like i don't know yosemite or something you know we're talking like a national park okay and then the city i don't know dangerous city what's like a scary city los angeles <laughs> yeah (laughs) and yes well okay a few things i feel like in a dangerous city sure like that might be scary depending on where you get dropped and i mean it's like do i have my phone can i call an uber and just get out of there but i feel like you can always find someone to help you it doesn't like dangerous cities are not like every single person you see is going to be really scary. Like you can go into a shop, you can figure out a way. Yeah. Wilderness. I am not like a survivalist. I do watch a lot of Naked and Afraid. I watch Alone. I watch Survivor. I feel like maybe I I could survive for like two days. Okay, that's not bad. (laughs) I could build a structure. I could build some type of lean-to against a tree. Yeah. I might be able to forage. Okay. I could probably start a fire even. Oh, I didn't decide. I think the city. I'd rather do the city. Yeah. After hearing your reasoning, I guess city. You're right, because people are the advantage there, right? Like, you're going to find someone or you're going to be able to walk somewhere 
no matter what you're in civilization, but wilderness, I don't watch Naked and Afraid. I do not watch Survivor. <laughs> so already I'm I, I don't even know. Like it's it's not for me. I would pick the Okay. And it's still that's a frightening thought. Yeah. Okay, I've got one. Okay. Because it's October. Okay. Would you rather live in a real haunted house or in the middle of the desert? And I don't know if that means like you're just like, is your house in the middle of the desert? <laughs> or, right. or are you like, in are the we desert? In Joshua Tree? Are we, do we have shelter or not? Are you just okay. in a sweet little mid century modern home in the desert <laughs> versus a haunted, an old <laughs> creaky haunted house where you're like constantly having things go wrong because the ghosts are messing with you? <laughs> okay. All right. I have some thoughts. Okay. So the haunted house, first of all, how cute is it? Is it a Victorian? Is it charming? Does it have like a kind of rambly garden? And it's sort of like giving like Southern Gothic vibes. That's a factor, you know? Yeah. Second of all, what type of haunting are we talking about? Is it sort of like friendly ghost? Is it a poltergeist type thing where knives are flying at your face? Yeah. Are you scaring me or are we cool? Like, do you just think maybe I don't use enough laundry detergent? That's fine. You can have an opinion about me and like knock stuff over in the laundry room, but it's it's not cool when they scare you, you know? Okay, here's the haunting. They sometimes mess with some stuff in your house. Like you'll find the furniture moved around a little bit, maybe a faucet turned on or the microwave. <laughs> and every once in a while, you see them out of the corner of your eye, like just standing in the room. You'll turn a corner in the hallway and there's a figure. Okay. Okay, but they're not like coming at you. Probably going to have to be the middle of the <laughs> desert. <laughs> Versus... Okay, in the middle of the desert, you're like kind of in one of those, um, like in the movie where you see a stop on the side of the road. It's like super far from everything. Um. Okay, I guess I'll go with desert. Okay. But, you know, I guess the solitude would be nice, but you know me, Laura. And in my head, I'm like, okay, so option one, you're dealing with ghosts. Option two, possibly aliens. Oh. So I don't know. It's just frightening no matter what. <laughs> Okay, and for our listeners, stay tuned because next week we are telling ghost stories for Halloween, right? Yeah, it's thrilling. <laughs> okay, Laura, I want to know your answer though, please. Well, you know, I think my house is a little haunted. I've lived in houses that are supposedly haunted. I don't think I'm a person who's receptive enough to hauntings to... Yeah. I've never had any real experiences with ghosts. So I think I'd rather live in the haunted house. I'm so scared. Like I'm always scared that I'm going to get haunted, but I think I'd rather live there because I think I've, I think if you love the house enough, yeah, it's worth it. Okay. Haunted house for me. I cannot live stranded out in the desert. I hear you. I mean, I do think it's a spectrum. Okay. Give me one more. Would you rather be extremely wealthy, but you have to walk everywhere? <laughs> Or no money, but you can travel anywhere in the world. Gosh, but you have no money. Like once you get there, what are you going to do? No. I think I would rather be very wealthy, but walk everywhere. It's like, oh, I'm wealthy and I'm super fit. Great. <laughs> Who needs a trainer? Yeah. I'm stuck right here. So hopefully I can just get a house in a really nice area where I love everything and I can just like walk you walk to the restaurant you like you walk to your groceries yeah I mean I'm kind of picturing that maybe I would live in Europe like some like really sweet town where it's beautiful I have everything I need I know everybody I can walk 
everywhere. Okay, what about you? Um, I mean, okay, so I think the crux of this question is, would you rather have money or like experience, right? Would you rather travel? Mm-hmm. And I'm I like traveling, but I'm not a huge traveler. So I might think I have to agree with your answer. Yeah, probably live somewhere that was like the ideal place for me. And you know, just have like, I like this restaurant. I like this store. I like this bar, whatever. And that's it. You know, <laughs> you'd have to fly your family in with all your money so that you could see people who don't live close to you. You just have to pay for them to come. Well, like, what if your partner can drive you? Does that count? No, I think that you can't like take any transportation. <laughs> you know, like you can't have your helicopter oh, come and land <laughs> and then fly you somewhere. <laughs> you can only walk to get from point A to point B. All right. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you one more. Would you rather speak only in a baby voice for a day <laughs> or only be spoken to in a baby voice for a day? A day is not bad. A day is not bad. I guess be spoken to in a baby voice. Really? (laughs) I don't really love using a baby voice. Oh, you don't like using a baby voice? (laughs) I am the opposite. I would not be able to stand listening to somebody talk to me in a baby voice for a whole day. That is unbearable to me oh my god i listen to a lot of true crime podcasts so i was listening to one about this genius level guy who was married and he committed a crime and was in jail and then all the recorded jailhouse conversations with his wife they spoke to each other in baby talk and when you hear the recordings i am like ripping my hair out because it is so aggravating. You can just picture their whole life at home where they talk to each other in baby talk. It is wild. Who are people that do that? Who are they? I'm going to send you a little clip. Yeah. I'm like, now I'm really curious about this. Oh my gosh. No, I don't have a lot of experience with baby talk. And especially because I don't have a pet right now. Like I have a fish, whatever, live her life. But I don't have like a dog or a cat. And I feel like that's when like you really want to use the baby talk, you know? Yeah, I guess... You don't even realize you're doing it when you're with your dogs, you know? And they're so cute. They're like a little baby. <laughs> you have to. All right. Thanks, everybody. We really are excited to talk ghost stories and spooky stuff next week. So stay tuned for that. But um, we're going to take a break and then we'll be back to discuss Chapter 8. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. (laughs) Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. 
Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Today we are talking about chapter eight from Beyond Behaviors. And we did want to note before we get into it, that this is a little bit of a sensitive subject. We are going to be talking about childhood trauma and there are some mentions of abuse and foster care systems and things that might be a little bit tough for some people. So if this sounds like something that is hard for you to listen to, maybe skip the episode, but we found it to be really informative. So if you feel up to it, hang in there with us. So chapter eight, as I said, is all about supporting behavioral challenges in children who are exposed to toxic stress and trauma. So the first thing we need to understand is the impact of stress on a child's brain. So if a child has a risk factor that is known as an ACE, which is an acronym for adverse childhood experience, they may be more likely to have emotional and behavioral challenges. So researchers from the CDC interviewed 17,000 people about their own early childhood experiences and then where their health and lifestyle was at currently. And there are a variety of things that are considered to be ACEs, but amongst them are physical abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, emotional abuse, intimate partner violence, household mental illness, and parental separation or divorce. So the researchers were able to draw the conclusion that the more ACEs a person has had, the more likely they are to have health, interpersonal, and behavioral challenges throughout their life. And we're going to talk about it, but it seems like the tipping factor is four ACEs or more tend to be the most challenging for people. So trauma-informed care is also becoming much more common now, and this helps adults who work with kids to recognize the presence of trauma symptoms and also to acknowledge the role that trauma plays in their lives and in their behavior. So researchers found that children with more than four ACEs in their history were more than 32.6 times more likely to be diagnosed with learning and behavioral problems than children who had less than four or zero ACEs. They found that children who had high levels of adversity and toxic stress showed a smaller hippocampus, which is important for memory and emotional regulation, but larger amygdalas, which is where the brain processes fear. So if we think about this, this is probably why we see children who have a lot of ACEs having learning difficulties because their hippocampus is smaller, so their memory is affected, maintaining and creating memory one, emotional regulation also, and then more of a fear response from the larger amygdala. Yeah, I found this so interesting. I was, you know, I read that paragraph and was like, I need to know more about this because it's like the brain is adapting to think that the area with your memory that's so important for memory gets smaller. Is it like your brain is adapting because it 
doesn't want you to hold on to some of those memories? Or is it just that your amygdala is so over responsive that it's growing and like affecting the rest? I was like, why is it happening in the brain? And then think, yeah, think about the ramifications, the impact that that has on learning and behavior. It's just like, it's really, really fascinating. Yeah, it really feels kind of like the source, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and also to make it to this point and never have even heard this. Like, that's crazy, too. Right. (laughs) I know. Um, But yeah, it was I agree. It was really interesting. So Dr. Delahook, she has four case studies that we look at throughout this chapter. They're all a little bit different, but there's some really key information. So the first case study that we're going to look at is Jesse. And Jesse's parents were high school seniors when he was born. So he had teen parents and his parents decided to live with the mom's parents until they were able to move out and support themselves. So they're living with baby Jesse's grandparents and his grandmother took care of him during the day where he really thrived. He was meeting all of his milestones. Everything was great. He was kind of the center of his grandma's day. And then his parents graduated and the family was really proud and they moved out into a studio apartment, just their small family of three. And they also got jobs at a fast food restaurant with staggered shifts so that Jesse would always have a parent at home and they wouldn't have to put him in daycare. But the move really proved to be stressful for Jesse and his sleeping regressed where while he was initially sleeping through the night at grandma's house, now he was waking up a lot during the night and this was affecting his parents' sleep when we know when parents are stressed out because they are dealing with sleep deprivation, it really overflows and you're much more likely to get in an argument. Um, I think they were also financially strained. So they were often arguing and yelling at each other in front of Jesse. And nobody really put together how much this was affecting him until they put him in a daycare center when he was two years old and he started biting other children. So the move from his grandma's house plus witnessing his parents' domestic conflicts were two aces in Jesse's short life. And his parents yelling most likely pushed him onto the red pathway and then also made him more sensitive to certain sounds in his environment. And Dr. Delahook really worked to establish trust with the young parents so that they wouldn't feel judged and that they would be more honest about what was happening in the home. And because they had this foundation of trust, it really helped Dr. Delahook to understand his history and the ACEs that had occurred while also making the connection between his behavior and his environment. So when they started analyzing his behavior, they realized that he was biting children the most when it was the busiest and the noisiest time of day, which happened to be free play. So around this time, Jesse was also diagnosed with a mild speech delay, which was probably impacting his ability to vocalize his feelings and advocate for himself. And this, combined with his previous ACE events, most likely led to him biting out of a fear and fight or flight response. So there were several things the team did to help Jesse. First of all, everybody in his life, like his parents, his grandparents, his teachers, prioritized his feelings of safety and security. He also started to see a speech therapist for the speech delay, and the therapist was trained in relationship-based approaches, and she was a developmental speech therapist, so that was helpful too. And then eventually financial constraints also forced Jesse and his parents back to the grandparents' house, and he really benefited from that increased relational warmth with adults and being close to his grandmother again, and probably the structure that was provided there. 
So once all those changes happened, his behavioral challenges started to decrease. And his iceberg is on page 234, if you want to check that out. You can see everything under the surface that was contributing to the biting behaviors. And once again, I feel like that component of the disrupted sleep is so key. Like, I don't know why it's so easy for us to dismiss it, but clearly it was adding stress for everybody, as well as the speech delay, the neuroception of threat, moving away from his grandma, witnessing his parents' domestic conflicts, and then all of that combined with the school setting where his memories were just triggered amongst other factors. So that is Jesse's story. And so I do like the case studies, but I have to say, I wish Dr. Delahook would have talked a little bit more about the treatment aspect. I know. Especially some of them, like maybe it was Matt. We'll talk about it. But there are some where I'm like, wait, what? Like at the end of the story, I'm like, I need more. <laughs> You know, I know. No, we were talking about how it feels like a lot of the stories are wrapped up with a really nice bow, right? That's what we talked about in the last episode. And so for us to get some of those stories that are not wrapped up like that, I'm like, oh, it's a bummer. You know, well, I feel like what she's doing in this chapter is helping the reader just have more of an understanding of the why, the reasons, and how beyond the child's control their behavior is sure. you know that these are stress responses and that the way we've probably treated these kids in the past is exactly the opposite of what they need and it's just developing that empathy and that's like the first and most important step when you are working with kids who have trauma right yes the empathy and the compassion yeah definitely but it was hard to read about you know uh i found it to be sobering Yeah, well, you think of kids who have childhood trauma as being maybe kids who were abused, but that's not the case here. This is trauma from kind of his family circumstances, his young parents, you know, being financially insecure and the stress of it. And these parents were doing their best and it still caused these problems for Jesse. So yeah, it is it is hard to hear. I know in some ways it's a little bit scary because it's like, wow, like anything could happen. I think it kind of makes me think of like when we were reading The Whole Brain Child and they talked about these things that seemed kind of inconsequential, like, oh, no, the toilet overflowed at the preschool when your daughter was using it when she was three years old. And to us, that feels like such like, oh, well, whatever, like things happen. But for her, it was so intense that now she's having all of these trickle down behaviors because of this event. And I think that it felt a little overwhelming, like, oh, no, anything could happen, you know, and then you're like undoing the damage for years. Yeah. In one of the previous chapters, Dr. Delahook said safety is in the eye of the beholder. So we know that like a situation is safe, but a kid, you don't know what the kid does with that in their head or what their body does that they don't even have any control over, you know, how they internalize it. So, yeah, 100 percent. Okay, so the next case study is about Matt. Matt and his brother, Rhett, were adopted at the age of three and two by a couple who were unable to get pregnant on their own. Rhett adjusted easily and slept well, was able to socially regulate, but Matt had difficulty and would wake up crying in the night and had trouble focusing during preschool. Once he was in kindergarten, he would kind of stick to himself and read books He would often lash out verbally at his adoptive parents and was having a hard time connecting with them. There were also a couple incidents where Matt set a small fire in the basement. And then also he killed the family hamster during a fight. He 
threw it against the wall in a fit of anger. So he was diagnosed with a reactive attachment disorder and a conduct disorder. There was a plan in place at school that included counseling and a behavioral treatment plan, and his teachers and parents were supposed to give him positive reinforcement when he behaved well and swift consequences when he did not. So Matt had few friends and he was seen as a loner and his behavior escalated to the point where he threw a large pot at his mother and threatened to kill her. So at this point, his parents called the police. They just didn't know what else to do. They were really overwhelmed. And his parents had expressed to Dr. Delahook that they had hoped that despite the abuse and the neglect that he had experienced in the first three years of his life, that their love and attention would help him to adjust like his brother had. But his social disengagement, harming animals, setting fires, and threatening his parents showed that his brain had never been able to stay consistently on the green pathway, especially with his primary caregivers. And his behaviors were sort of an early indication that he was seeing danger or feeling threatened in his environment, even when he was safe. So his early ACE experiences impacted his ability to control his emotions. Also, it impacted his cognitive abilities and prevented him from linking his own goals to a broader common good, which had a big impact on his sense of justice. So unfortunately, the plan that was in place didn't really help him because they treated him as if he had a disorder instead of treating the root cause. And the three systems that worked to help him, you know, the education system, the medical system, the mental health system, were operating in their own kind of spheres and they weren't coordinated about the most important factor, which was his early exposure to that toxic stress. So he was essentially being punished for subconscious survival-based behaviors that were more of an automatic response based on multiple traumatic experiences early in his life where he felt that his caretakers were a threat to him. So this resulted in him thinking negatively of himself and others. And you can check out Matt's iceberg on page 237. You know, the plan that was in place did nothing to acknowledge his history and the impact that it had on his individual differences. And it kind of only served to reinforce his dark thoughts and his feelings that other people were the enemy. So imagine, you know, you can't really control your behavior. You're sort of on autopilot and you have all these people telling you you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, control it, control it. And even if he was trying really hard, he couldn't control it because this was more of his faulty neuroception, right? His feeling of safety. So negative consequences for his behaviors only made him feel like other people were out to get him, which probably made him feel more alone and lash out more. And eventually Matt was hospitalized due to suicidal threats. And he met a psychiatrist during his inpatient stay who had recently been educated on trauma-informed care. So she kind of looked at his medication. Apparently he was on quite a lot. And at this point he was an eighth grader. So she dedicated herself to working with the family to try to help him. And they decided to homeschool him for his first year of high school and the end of the story is that basically everyone's just kind of hoping that he'll be successful and we'll see what happens with Matt. This was a rough one for me. Yeah. When you hear how his early experiences have made him feel that other people are out to get him, that other people are the enemy and need to be punished. It's so trite to say hurt people hurt people, but it's just like to see where that comes from. 
this is something our society has to deal with. And clearly you can see that Matt, even people who are trying to help him were just not doing things that were helpful. They were making the problem worse even. And so the way that we help these kids up until now is not effective in a lot of places. Obviously, there are people doing great work. Yeah, It's yeah. really interesting to connect the dots from his early childhood to, you know, the way people treated him in school to some of the behaviors that you end up seeing. Yeah, definitely. And these kids who are really at risk, it's just hard. Yeah, I wish everybody, it's sort of like such a big paradigm shift needs to happen, which is Dr. Delahook talks about it. But it's almost like whatever programs these people are going through in school, I wish that this was talked about more instead of just like classical conditioning, which, you know, is helpful with behavior. But we're learning from Dr. Delahook that there's so much more going on. Yeah. The third case study is also really tough. This was really hard to read about also. Um, all about Lauren. So Lauren was only four years old when he was rescued from his family home. He was found tied to a bed after his father was arrested for dealing drugs and his mother had abandoned the family sometime before that. So needless to say, he had suffered physical and emotional abuse and neglect from a very early age. Lauren had dealt with unrelenting toxic stress as his body tried to manage all that stress in the absence of protective adult support. So the police tried to do the right thing and they tried to place him with distant relatives, but Lauren soon began attacking their toddler son and then his relatives asked him to be placed somewhere else. So his next placement was with a family who had four other foster children and they were known to be very structured and the social worker thought, well, maybe this structure will be helpful for him, but it was not. And he continued to lash out by having explosive outbursts, knocking food and dishes off the table and hitting people. So he lived in that home for less than a year. And during that time, he was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and a significant learning disability. So Lauren spent most of the next six years in a therapeutic group home that had its own school. He seemed to be doing okay, but then when he was 12 years old, a boy behind him tapped on his shoulder in the lunch line and it startled him and he turned around and punched him and broke his nose. So this just shows that Lauren's brain was wired for defense because of his early ACE experiences. So this led to his unpredictable red pathway behaviors that were instinctive and defensive reactions to what seemed to be unthreatening circumstances. And this was all caused by faulty neuroception. So Lauren eventually wound up in juvenile hall as his behaviors continued to accumulate and escalate. And Dr. Delahook notes that children who experience the school to prison pipeline also have experienced stress loading conditions like exposure to poverty, food insecurity, racism, and implicit bias. So most of the adults in Lauren's life lacked training on trauma-informed care and really didn't understand how his early childhood experiences had impacted his neuroception. And instead of giving positive rewards for good behavior and consequences for negative behavior, everybody in his life needed to understand how to help him regulate his response to stress. So this was really clear during his IEP meetings when the educators and admin who worked with him would describe his behaviors as intentional and purposeful instead of perceiving it as a result of his developmental trauma. So Dr. Delahook included some quotes from an admin 
during one of Lauren's IEPs. And some of the quotes were, Lauren is capable of doing far more than what he actually does. And Lauren is basically lazy and chooses not to do the work. So Dr. Delahook explained that understanding that his traumatized brain and body were prone to instinctive survival-based red pathway behaviors helped them to arrive at a different approach, one where they looked at the cause of his behavior rather than the behaviors themselves. And what would be the most beneficial to Lauren was shifting the target from modifying the behaviors to social engagement and relationships. So you can look at his iceberg on page 242. And I think Dr. Delahook was looking at his situation and trying to think like, where does he feel safe? Does he have any established relationships? And there was one person in his life who he trusted, a retired teacher and volunteer at his group home named Mary. So she helped him with his homework, took him to dinner sometimes, and they went on walks. And in all the time she had known Lauren, years and years, he had only had two outbursts with her. And so this was kind of showing that even though Mary hadn't had any trauma-informed training, it seemed like instinctively she understood that the key was relational safety. And by forming relationships with children like Lauren, we can help them to shift their subconscious self-protective reactions and realize that they're no longer needed. So children who have experienced trauma often have added emotional vulnerability on top of their behaviors. And they tend to have more extreme and unpredictable behavioral challenges. So it's important to just move forward cautiously to make sure we don't make matters more stressful by trying different solutions that are trying to fix the wrong thing. We can do this by getting the most comprehensive view of the child's history, specifically their relational history and their physical environment. And I was thinking when I was reading this, you know, this is probably pretty tough. Not only are parents, you know, they can be not the best historians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just sometimes when I hear her making these connections, I worry that like some key information will be left out. Because some of these things, do they just don't seem so obvious. Like the story from the last chapter where they figured out that boy had been bullied in the treehouse at school. Yeah. It's like if that had never been brought up, it would still be so mysterious. So I don't know. I kind of worry with some of these kids who, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, have had different case managers and different social workers and different foster parents. Like there is no one person who understands the whole story. So it is important mm -hmm. to do some digging. And the questions that we can ask might be like, what age was the child exposed to adverse experiences? Was this during the first year or two years of life? Was the stress chronic or did they have cycles where there was some relational safety? Has there ever been one consistent and stable adult in the child's life, et cetera? So you could try your best to kind of get to the bottom of things. One of the most important things is to connect with families and caregivers in order to help children develop self-awareness and learn about emotional self-care in a way that is culturally respectful and also fits their unique needs. So try to provide children and families with access to therapists who are trauma-informed and who use trauma-informed practices and who will respect every family's experiences, individual differences, culture, learning pathways, and social-emotional development. So things like poverty, race, Power imbalances and privilege are serious factors that can affect a person's feeling of safety in the world. And, you know, we need to really address those and make sure that 
whatever treatment or help we're providing is reflective of that. So now we're going to talk about predictability because it's really important to children who have had ACEs in their past. These kids might have a hard time dealing with unexpected changes, thinking flexibly, or solving problems when things don't go their way or the way that they thought they were going to go. And this can cause a child to easily go down a red pathway if things happen suddenly or without warning. So for example, Lauren often experienced emotional disruptions when dealing with unexpected change. And they told a story about how a social worker got some last minute tickets to a baseball game and she knew Lauren really liked the team. So she kind of arranged for them to go later that day, but nobody had front loaded him about it. So all of a sudden the driver shows up to take them to the game. And while on the outside, he seemed to adjust pretty well on the inside, he was struggling to adapt to the change in his routine. And as soon as they got to the stadium, Lauren got into a fight with another foster child and ended up hitting him. So then he was punished by having his iPad taken away. And if the team had been trauma informed and if they were aware of his sensitivity to sudden changes, then maybe somebody could have taken the time to tell him what to expect or to front load him prior to the event. And trauma informed practice can help caregivers understand and also contextualize triggering life experiences to help them with their trauma recovery. And sadly, Dr. Delahook shares that a year later, Mary, the person who Lauren had formed such a strong bond with, ended up moving away. And shortly thereafter, Lauren ended up back in juvenile hall. So there are several people who are working on developing and kind of putting in place some of these programs that teach more about trauma and the brain. And, you know, I think we are all hopeful that this will become the standard of care when dealing with children who have this level of trauma in their past. Yeah. You know, as I read this chapter, a lot of kids came to mind, but one in particular who I worked with my first couple years, there was a really young kid. I met him when he was in TK who both parents had been incarcerated. He'd been in foster care. He was back with his mom. He had a lot of diagnoses. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia on, I think, his sixth birthday. Hmm. His aide came to me and said, he's ready for speech. Because we before, his behavior had been so difficult to manage that there was no way he was going to be able to work on speech sounds. He was really unintelligible. But she came to me and she said, he's ready. And I remember being so, this kid was so unpredictable that I was very, very stressed about it. I was having dreams about it, but I set it up like I had this whole plan in place where one table in my room was the play table and one was the work table. And when he came in, he got to pick from three fun activities that he would work for and he would just have to get like five stars and then we'd go play at the play table. And I did it the exact same way. Like, I'm like, okay the predictability. I also, every time I was going to work with him, I went and checked in with him during breakfast and said, like, do you want to go to speech later today? You know, I let him know that we would be doing speech. And I also, he loved Ninja Turtles. And I got this Ninja Turtle that when you put it in water in like an aquarium, it grew over two weeks. And then you had a toy to play with that was full grown. But it was like, we put it in the first day he worked with me. And then We used that he could come to my room when he was having like a good day. He could come to my room and check on his Ninja Turtle and like see how much it had grown. (laughs) But what I was going to say was this child had an employee of the school had fostered him when his mother was incarcerated. And that was the person everyone knew like 
he trusts her. And so she's the Mary in the story. But that's so much, you know, and you don't want to go like, oh, it's so much pressure. But like, I know how taxing it was for me emotionally to work with this child because I loved him. Right. I loved him so much. But it was, you know, you never knew what was going to happen. You saw what he was going through. It was very hard. And then to be that one person, it is a lot of pressure on you. You know, and I'm sure Mary felt that way. I'm moving away and this kid, I'm the only person this kid trusts and I need to move. Or for me, a a lot of times, like leaving my school, going to a new school was hard because I felt like I had those connections with kids where I said, what's this kid going to do when I don't come back next year? You know, this relationship based approach is great, but there need to be there can't just be one point person. (laughs) There needs to be like five people that child trusts and can lean on so that when one leaves, it's not completely devastating. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about that too. Just she must have felt conflicted when she had to move. Yeah. Thinking, oh, his, you know, the quality of his life is hanging in the balance or his future, you know? Yeah. It's a lot to have on you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can use ourselves to buffer the stress of unexpected change in routines for children. So when these things happen, the best tool is the therapeutic use of ourselves. So maybe, Laura, instead of just one person, everybody could try to be more this way. And we want to increase emotional cues of safety for the child. So you can sit down with them, talk to them, or walk with the child as soon as possible if there's a change in the schedule or if something happens. And of course, it's best to talk to them before anything happens, if you can. And then she talks about how in addition to just talking about the schedules, you can use visual signs, visual schedules, posters, maybe a whiteboard with pictures or words to help children prepare for each day and week. So using pictures in the schedule can help with sequencing. And of course, SLPs love visual schedules. So we're familiar with those, but they are helpful if the child's a visual learner. So you can write down their schedule if they're a reader. And if something sudden happens, you can kind of write it into the schedule so they can see that and integrate it into their plan for the day. Or you can change the picture if you're using pictures. And if the child's an auditory learner, you can talk to them just in the morning about the daily schedule. You can talk through any changes and you can make it fun and interactive by asking if they know what comes first, second, third, by making up a little song. There's tons of fun things you can do. So it's important to remember that children benefit from having control and experiencing flexibility when they're learning how to adapt to change. And this can be helpful when a child's pathway starts to go from green to red. It's important to remember that controlling the environment, even if it's with an aggressive behavior, is an unintentional adaptive response for children who have no control over stressful or life-threatening circumstances that they've experienced. And we can allow them choices over simple decisions like the order in which they do things or what they want to eat or how they want to spend their free time. And you can also, as adults, we can model flexibility in ourselves by responding to changes in our schedule and staying calm and just kind of like going with the flow, staying on the green pathway. And there is a quote from Bruce Perry that sums this all up pretty well, and it is, We cannot emphasize enough how important it is for traumatized children to be given the most possible control, predictability, and ability to moderate the timing, duration, and intensity of their experiences. And then she also had a little note at this point about staff turnover. 
we want to try to limit that as much as possible. I know it's really hard because we can't control people leaving or job changes, but specifically children in the foster care system have a lot of turnover with caregivers, therapists, social workers, and other just like helpers in their lives. So trust in human relationships is one of the most foundational things to begin the healing process while creating new memories of safety and protection to help them build their trust. So safety is treatment and treatment is safety. Dr. Delahook includes some questions to ask about interventions for children who have a lot of ACEs in their history. And some examples of these questions are, does my intervention increase or decrease the child's sense of safety? And am I encouraging consistent messages of safety throughout my interactions or techniques? So some things to remember as to what we should not be doing. These kind of feel like no brainers, but it's a good reminder. (laughs) Uh, We should avoid punitive measures like punishment, corporal punishment. Of course, we should not be doing that. Sequestering, isolating, ignoring, shaming or blaming. We also want to remember that point systems and level systems like the card, you know, you have a green card. Now you're on yellow. Those can be detrimental if a child's not in a place to use their top-down capacity. They can have actually negative consequences and can move children onto the red or the blue pathway. So we have to remember that these kinds of children cannot necessarily control their behavior because it's their stress response. And so now we're going to talk about the fourth case study, which is about Lena. Lena was eight years old when her father had to suddenly move abroad for a job. And at first, Lena seemed to cope with the change pretty well. But then suddenly two months later, every day there was just like a series of fights and battles with her mom about everything from eating breakfast to brushing her teeth to doing homework. And eventually her mom was referred to Dr. Delahook by her pediatrician. And she was just pretty defeated and exhausted by the fighting and by the things that Lena would scream at her. She was making her mom cry and it just sounded like a pretty bad situation. So Dr. Delahook suggested that she keep a log when the outbursts were occurring so they could analyze it. And they were able to figure out that the majority of her outbursts were during activities that her father had helped her with before he left. So Lena's mother had previously worked as a night shift nurse and therefore her husband was picking up Lena from school, helping her with her homework and getting her ready for bed. So when he left, Lena's mother had switched to the day shift to try to ease that transition, but she was still really affected by that. And Lena's emotional thresholds plummeted. Nothing her mom was doing was working. She was trying incentives, talking to her, begging her to behave better, and it just was not helping her. So even when the mom would ask, like, how do you feel about your dad leaving? How are you doing? She would just say she was fine and she wouldn't really talk about it. And that's because her mom was using top-down approaches for a bottom-up issue, which was Lena's feelings of loss and grief. And the feelings were kind of just stuck inside of her without a way out. And once she started working with Dr. Delahook, her mother changed her behavior and tried to engage first, talk less, and listen more. And Dr. Delahook urged her to play with her daughter and playfully engage with her while they were on the green pathway as the first step to supporting her top-down abilities and to also help Lena build up her ability to cope with her pain and her suffering by finding these moments of joyful interaction with her mom. So these positive interactions became the template for 
her mom to help Lena fortify her social emotional development and recover from the stress she had experienced when her dad left. And if you want to check out Lena's iceberg, it's on page 252. And Dr. Delahook talks more about how she worked with Lena's mom over a couple of individual sessions to help her get on her own green pathway because she was also struggling with becoming a single parent while her husband was gone. And then her therapeutic sessions with Lena and her mom together were more about discovering what brought them into that joyful interaction. And Dr. Delahook talks about how her broad definition of play is anything that supports and energizes a pleasurable, organic, back-and-forth flow of exchanges. So at home, Lena's mother also tried to stay closer physically to her daughter, would give her little massages when she took homework yeah. breaks, and their relationship slowly improved, and Lena began to enjoy her mom's increased attention and empathy. So as this all improved, Lena was spending more time on the green pathway, and she started to open up and talk more about her feelings and her thoughts. So the bottom-up foundation of emotional development now supported the strengthening of her top-down abilities. And once she was able to express her feelings with words, her behaviors decreased. So that's a nice little bow moment for us. <laughs> We're just wrapping it up with the bow. Uh -huh. And increasing a child's cues of relational engagement and safety is more natural when we view behavior as adaptive coping mechanisms instead of intentional behavior. So I think that's what you were talking about in the beginning, Laura, is like the whole kind of point of this chapter is we need to stop thinking of kids as like, oh, you're doing this on purpose. You're acting bad. Can't you just fix it when this is just adaptive for them? It's not intentional. And we need to bring more understanding and compassion to the situation. Yeah. So we need to remember that a child's behavior is more of an indicator of their internal life and a sign that they're dealing with excessive stress. And then I thought that this was really informative too, as she kind of compared Lauren's situation to Lena's situation. So she talks about big T trauma and little t trauma, which if you've ever been in therapy, that might be familiar. <laughs> so big T trauma is referring to moments where someone feels helpless and they feel like there's a perception of their life being threatened while little t trauma is just life events that are distressing and exceed the person's ability to cope but they're not really viewed as life-threatening so we can see that lauren's traumatic experiences were more of the big t trauma kind of event whereas lena's experience with her dad leaving was more of a little t trauma experience and Lauren was also dealing with being a member of a minority group. Again, it's really important to remember how complex the effects of trauma, neglect, poverty, racism, and other developmental adversities can be. Lena's background did not include the additional ACEs that Lauren had dealt with. So she was sort of more prepared to deal with her feelings and her response to the situation. She had more of an opportunity to develop psychological resilience and a greater likelihood of stress tolerance. So the difference in their experience kind of highlights why foster children and others whose early lives were disrupted can be impacted significantly by the positive suggestions in this chapter. But above all, the key to addressing trauma is through loving, consistent relationships so the brain can sort of reorganize how the body feels. So I thought this was a very informative chapter. It kind of helped me to look at things differently. I think the population that you work with will determine how useful this information is for you. 
but I was thinking about some of the kids I've seen who've had pretty significant behavioral issues and knowing what I do about some of the home life situations, this kind of made sense to me for sure. Yeah. I was thinking it's like with someone like Lauren, we would like for it to be wrapped up with a bow and say this treatment, they, we did this, we did this, we did this, and it all worked. And now he's graduating from high school. And, you know, it's like, yeah. that's what we want. But maybe the goal is just making that child feel as safe as possible. And you're not going to be able to, maybe they won't get to a point where they're able to handle all situations the way that we would want them to. But, you know, it's decreasing those behaviors a little bit through relational safety. Success is going to look different for everyone when there is trauma or, or toxic stress involved, I guess. Yeah, you know, this is kind of making me think, let's think about this situation. And what if we, I'm thinking about like, what if I was on an IEP team for a child where I felt like they would really benefit from trauma-informed practice? Would I feel comfortable bringing this up in an IEP setting? And what's a good place to start to implement these things? Is this about going to your principal and suggesting an in-service? Is this about SLPs leading an in-service about trauma-informed practice? Like, is that our role? Is that something where we pair with the school psychologist and maybe tag team? Because it feels like the word just needs to get out. And I'm trying to think about, like, what's the best way to do that, you know? And I mean, maybe it doesn't even need to be so explicit or formal, maybe in an IEP team. I'm just thinking of some kids I worked with who, same, both after a domestic incident, both parents were incarcerated and they were all split up. And then, you know, six months into the school year, finally, I saw them with their mom and they were all back together under her care and she was working to get a job and what all of those kids, maybe it just needs to be a meeting where we say like, hey, we don't put so much expectation on them. We're not pushing them. We're making them feel as safe as they can. So everybody needs to just work on building your relationships and letting those kids know that you're someone they can trust yeah. and go to and feel safe with. Right. Teachers feel so pressured like to get test scores and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, these kids are just coming back from a pretty traumatic experience. And this is where our focus needs to be. Yeah, it's like you just want to assume that people would do that. But <laughs> I don't know, I guess. Not. Yeah, I was just kind of trying to think like the best way for us. I guess it is more on a one on one basis. But yeah, I'm some schools could really benefit from everybody knowing more about this, you know, and I'm sure like when I think about it, I'm like, the term trauma-informed practice is not new to me. Maybe I've attended even a session, you know, when they do like those huge, yeah. like back to school events and you do the giant day where you do all the PD or whatever. I'm sure I've like watched something about it or even attended a session, but sometimes it doesn't really stick. And the context can be really helpful, you know? Yeah. And I think also depending on a school, where a school's located, the population of the school, it's kind of on the administration to make sure that the, I'm picturing the first school I worked at, that's the one I've told you in the past, had a really great restorative justice program. Right. I loved attending all of their like school-wide events with all the teachers and staff because it was such a community and so loving and supportive. And I think that you know, if you do have a really good principal, he's going to make sure he or she will make sure that the teachers are learning the right stuff 
to support those kids at that school. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I hope everybody was able to gain some good information from this chapter. It was definitely heavy, but important. So join us next time as we discuss chapter nine. We're sort of making our way through this book and we're almost done. So hang in there with us and we'll also talk about some scary stuff for Halloween next time. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.